The following message is from Grace on the Ashley Baptist Church, located in Charleston, South Carolina. For more information about Grace on the Ashley, visit graceontheashley.org. Anybody, um, does anybody follow Tim Challies? You do? Okay. So I'll be in prayer for him tonight as well, um, as well as everything else going on. And then obviously my study and the, really the, the thick, um, we're going to be in the thick of it tonight. Uh, we have a, a massive undertaking. This is theology proper. This is the study of God himself. Um, and to do it in an hour, I must be insane for signing up for this one. But I'm going to try to do my best. And actually, you know what, I do have my phone, so... I'll check it periodically, and um, but if you don't stop me, I'll just keep going. Okay, so whenever you start raising that, you just tell me to start speaking faster, faster, faster. All right. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, thank you for this time that we have together to gather together as the body of Christ, Lord, and together in this in this building together with one another. We're thankful that we can do that now, Lord, together in person. I'm thankful for the study that we have. I'm thankful for the word by which we get it. You have revealed yourself through your objective standard of truth. You have given it so that you can be known. In addition to natural revelation, you have given us this special and wonderful peace by which we can know you. How wonderful it is, how soothing to the mind it is when anxieties try to infiltrate. How it consoles us. Gives us peace when we are in a state of unrest. It reminds us of who our God is and who we are. And you are our shepherd. And we do not need to worry or grow weary or faint. This study is needed more than ever right now in recent weeks of just tumultuous news cycles and all that's going on. And I just pray that, Lord, we, we not grow weary or anxious in this time, Lord, but to know that whatever happens, what come may, that you have foreordained it and you have done so for the purposes of your glory and the goodness of your people. I pray for our brother and sister in Christ, Tim Chalice and his wife, in the recent death of their son, most untimely death. I pray that you would be with him, Lord, as you are the God of all comfort, as we learn about from the Apostle Paul. And we learn about it through everywhere else, that you are the God of comfort. And I pray for those who are around them and at Southern Seminary and elsewhere at his church uh, that they would comfort him with the comfort which they have been comforted it's so devastating to lose a child to lose anyone but they can also rejoice in that he knew you you called him home it was ultimately you father they can rest in that i pray that they would abide in you and you keep them to yourself lord 
in the coming weeks and months ahead. I know it will be hard and difficult. I can't even imagine. But they can't do it without you. And they can rejoice because they do have you, the one who will sustain them to the very end. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. All right. So we have theology proper tonight. So this is the study of God himself. Um, Like I said, I only have probably 50 minutes now, and I'm going to try to get through as much as possible within that amount of time, but I'm going to do so with cooperation from everybody else. I want you you to engage as well. This is a two-way street here. Um, And so I just have a little bit of a prologue. I just kind of want us to kind of understand what we're going to be undertaking, um, what knowing God is, what it is not, the traps of thinking that you do or the purposes of gaining theological insight for the sake of gaining theological insight and I can have conversations with people and you know by golly I can I can you know debate with the best of them but that doesn't make me it doesn't make me knowing God and knows uh, it knows makes me knowing about God um, and there are many instances in church history John Wesley being one of them uh, him being in the Holy Club at one point um, with, along with uh, George Whitfield, uh, he, he wasn't he wasn't a believer, but he was in the Holy Club. He knew Scripture. He knew it with the best of them. The demons have an impeccable theology, but they don't have any faith in in God. They have no trusting faith in God, and they never never will. Um. So actually, let me start by who. Who was here last week? Who was here last week? You were here last week. I know you were. I was only here for a few minutes. Elijah didn't let me stay very long. Um, Can anybody tell me what you kind of just briefly overview what you went over? Come on now. Anybody, what was last week's topic? It was on the Bible? Okay, so there we have... God's uh, objective standard so we can know him by what he's given us, right? Hmm? How to study it? So different ways and methods of doing that? Okay, good. Alright. But we have God's word. And like I said, it's his standard. It's his self-revelation that he's given to us in addition to what we know in Romans 1 as natural revelation. The whole world, that's why the whole world is without excuse. Okay? They know that God exists, but yet they suppress the truth in unrighteousness because he can be known, he can be, he can be perceived in the things that have been made. Um, but in 2 Timothy 3.15 uh, through 17, that's where Paul states that the scriptures are able to make you wise unto salvation. Wise unto salvation. And you look in the Old Testament, wisdom, what is wisdom? You look in Proverbs 2, uh, 1 through 5. Listen to this. My son, if you receive my words and treasure up my commandments with you, making your ear attentive to wisdom, inclining your your heart to understanding, yes, if you call out for insight and raise your voice for understanding, if you seek it like silver, That is wisdom, true wisdom, godly wisdom. If you seek it like you do silver 
and search for it as hidden treasures, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find knowledge of God. So in other words, as the scripture says, don't be wise in your own sight. Your heart will lead you astray. Your heart is not an objective standard. It will lead you astray. Um, that is unless your heart is guided by God's word. So the uh, theology proper, in essence, is the study of God himself, um, a survey which um, will extend throughout the entirety of our lives. Other subjects we can somewhat grapple with, you know, the sciences or craftsmanship. We can somehow, you know, we can reach this point where we can say, you know, I've got it. I've accomplished this. I've reached the height of where I can be. I can understand and comprehend it. But when it comes to this master science, we find ourselves walking away a little bit. We don't feel the same way, do we? We usually turn away quickly, as Job's friends did, and utter, Oh, I am but of yesterday and know nothing. The same thing that led Paul to exclaim, Oh, the depths and the riches and wisdom of the knowledge of God. Even when contemplating the deity in terms of his creative power, we look at, I just mentioned, natural, <clears throat> natural revelation, the things that God has made and that we can know him. And you look at that and the sheer awe that ensues afterwards. That it had the psalmist say, what is man that you are mindful of him? And the son of man that you care for him? So I'm gonna be saying this a lot tonight, but no subject will tend to more humble the mind than thoughts of God. But while it does humble, it also expands the mind. And it also consoles us. It gives us peace. It gives us rest. You want to know somebody that knows their God? You see how they respond to things. You see how they live. You see how they care for one another, how they love people. You look at Daniel, and we'll look at that in a little bit. I mean, what more incredible example than than Daniel in the face of the opposition of Nebuchadnezzar. And what does he do? He says, I'm not gonna I'm gonna I'm not gonna eat the king's food. It doesn't matter what comes. I'm gonna be faithful whatever happens. And you look at the in the uh, Acts of the Apostles in Luke's second letter, we have the same thing, the, the apostles arrested for teaching about the way, teaching in the name of Jesus. He said, you know, you need to decide whether this is right for us to do it, but we're going to do it. We don't get our marching orders from you. We get them from the one who has created us, from the one who sustains me, the one who sustains the entire world. Um, but There's also something improving to the mind in the, con uh, in the contemplation of God. And again, is, is a subject that we come lost in it in its immensity. And the phrase could cause some misunderstanding when I say is incomprehensible because it could somehow be formed or an idea could be formed that there's no way we can know God, which would negate everything I just told you. 
And that's not what I mean. That's not what anybody means when they talk about the incomprehensibility of God. That just means that of all the things that God is and all of his attributes, all of his character, he doesn't reveal everything. But what we have, what we do have, what we know, he's given to us. Like his immutability, um, his holiness, all of these things. And they are enough for us to know. And uh, a couple of passages that, uh, when I was looking at this, popped out directly uh, into my mind when I think about this is Deuteronomy 29, 29. Um, the secret things belong to the Lord, our God, but the things that, we, that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may, that we may do all the words of the law. Another one I thought of, Job 26, 14, Behold, these are but the outskirts of his ways. These, these, these things that we have in here, they're just the, the perimeter of what we know. And how a small whisper do we hear of him. But the thunder of his power, who can understand? And in Psalm 143, uh, 145.3, Great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised, his greatness is unsearchable. So it's the infinite the chasm between the infinite and the finite is huge. But what he has given us is enough. It's enough to make us wise. It's enough to make, uh, it's enough to make us know him. It's why we have the certain language even that we have um, in the Old Testament uh, when it speaks of God's arm and it speaks of you know, God's hand doing certain things. So it's that, that anthropomorphic lang- language that we have that makes you know, communication with the deity and us possible. Again, while I said that, you know, it, it humbles the mind, it points to, I mean, God's holiness. I mean, what does it do? It, it, it points directly to, it reminds us how sinful we are. It points us to a need for Savior. I can't keep that perfect standard. You look in Deuteronomy, you look in all the Old Testament. You, you want to know God? Read Deuteronomy. Become acquainted with his law, know his ways. But it also, that's what it, it always consoles the heart. It's what I've been doing through this whole, you know, week with all this stuff going on. And I know the Chalice family is doing the same, but you want to soothe your heart. You want to go to the mind of God. And it's what led Spurgeon to write this. I thought this was absolutely phenomenal. I could not have thought a better, a better way to put it. Um, and he's good at doing that. He said, oh, there is in contemplating Christ a balm for every wound. In musing on the Father, there is a quietus for every grief, and in the influence of the Holy Spirit, there is a balsam for every sore. Would you lose your sorrows? Would you drown your cares? Then go plunge yourself in the Godhead's deepest sea. Be lost in his immensity, and you shall come forth as from a couch of rest, refreshed, invigorated, I know nothing which can so comfort the soul, so calm the swelling billows of grief and sorrow, so speak, to the, so speak peace to the winds of trial as a devout musing upon the subject of the Godhead. I sat and rested on that for a while this week. 
when you think about it, this is exactly what it does for the Christian. You find peace in, in God's sovereignty. You find peace in all of his attributes. It's an amazing thing. So from here, uh, where we plot out our course, I said earlier, this is kind of like looking at this mountain kind of surveying it, looking around this way, that way, and then we're going to start climbing. And we're going to go through the attributes as much as possible. I don't know how many we'll be able to get through. I think this lesson was, Greg, was this, how many hours was it supposed to be? Three hours. Okay. So let's lock the doors. Everybody's going to be in here for three hours. Oh, yeah, we really should um, at some point maybe do like a series on the attributes of God. Maybe like a four, six-week series would be good. Um, but what I want to do real quick before uh, I'm going to start asking you guys some questions. Does everybody have a book? Uh, I see some books. Bailey's? Oh, that's fine. I'm calling you first. Um, yeah, I'm going to stress something that um, I was thinking about, and I was thinking about it because one of the first books that I read um, shortly after coming to Christ was a book by J.I. Packer called Knowing God. If you've never read it, I would highly recommend that you do so. Um, and it's something that MacArthur, if you listen to the sermon, um, he talks about, and if you look in the book, he actually talks about too, but it's the differences, I touched on it briefly earlier, it's, there's a difference, there's a huge difference between knowing God, <clears throat> knowledge of God, and knowledge about God. Two totally different things. And so, the people that have knowledge of God, they abound greatly. I mean, you would have people profess, not only within the Christian church, the true church, but you have many uh, and um, outside the church, what would you call cults, classic cults, Mormonism, Jehovah's Witnesses, things like that, they would definitely say that they, they would know God. But their knowledge of God is a little different than what I'm talking about, and just seared knowledge of God, even within the Christian circles, is a little different. Um, so people can have a knowledge of God without truly knowing him. As I said earlier, the demons have an impeccable knowledge, and they don't know him, as true knowledge goes. So then, it is more than intellectual assent. It moves from assent to full trust and faith in all that God has done in and through Christ. People may know as much about God as John Calvin knew, and yet, unlike Calvin, they may never truly know God. You'll see that in their works. Jesus talks about that all the time. If you see somebody professing Christ, and you look at the fruits. They say I'm an orange tree, but I got, I got apples. No, I'm sorry. You don't bear fruit in keeping with repentance. You don't love the way Christ loved. You don't love your enemies. But I'm speaking of familiarity that exists uh, between the shepherd and his sheep. Okay, the bridegroom and the bride. And that intimacy that we see in John 17, 
that high priestly prayer, that wonderful prayer that Jesus is praying to the Father, that he would keep us, that we would be one as they are one. And that has us, as in Romans says, crying, Abba, Father. You listen to the psalmist, oh, how I love your law, the reaction of somebody who knows their God. Because that law is a direct reflection of the one who gave it. True knowledge provides everything for the Christian. Those who know them have great energy for him. That's one thing. They have great energy for him. They have great boldness for him. They share his same love that he has. And I said earlier, you can look to no other person. Well, you, you can look through many in, in, in the entirety of Scripture, but one that stuck out this week to me uh, was Daniel. Um, so I have this from, uh, I stole something from Packer, and he had it in his book. <clears throat> he said, the central truth of which Daniel taught Nebuchadnezzar, I mean, I mean remember Nebuchadnezzar ended up coming to, to faith, is an absolutely remarkable thing within those short sentences after his conversion once he gained his mind he had a mind of an animal you can only imagine what he was acting like in that. I mean they can make a movie about that that'd be something else um, but he said the central truth which Daniel taught Nebuchadnezzar in chapters 2 and 4 and of which reminded Belshazzar in chapter 5 and which Nebuchadnezzar acknowledged in chapter 4 and which Darius confessed in chapter 6 and which was the basis of Daniel's prayers in 2 and 9. And tonight, if you got time, which I know you do, go home and read specifically the prayer in chapter 9. You want to see, you want to know somebody's relationship with their God? You look, you look at their prayer. You look at their prayer life. It's a wonderful And if I have time, then I'll do it. And of confidence in defying authorities in chapter 1 and 6, and of his friends' confidence in defying authority in chapter 3, and which formed the staple substance of all the disclosures which God made known to Daniel in chapters 2, 4, 7, 8, 10, 11, 12. It's that truth, this truth right here, the Most High is sovereign over kingdoms of men. He knows, foreknows all things. And his foreknowledge is foreordination. He therefore will have the last word, both in world history and in destiny of every man. His kingdom and righteousness will triumph in the end, for neither men nor angels will be able to thwart him. These were the thoughts which filled Daniel's mind. And these are the sort of thoughts that should fill ours as well. Listen to this. Praise be to the God forever and ever wisdom and power his his name his changes or he changes times and seasons sets up kings and deposes them he gives wisdom oh lord the great and awesome god who keeps covenant of love with all who love him and obey his commands are these similar to our thoughts about god do we walk away from the scriptures in complete awe and say how i love your law how I love your ways. Please make me more like you. Please give me the mind of Christ that I may live according to my calling, that I may exercise all of godliness to other people around me to the point that I would arouse somebody's affections to Christ. 
But I also want to say something for those who may be here who do not um, know God this way, in this intimate way. Uh, be prayerful that the knowledge of God will turn to a knowledge of God rather than about God. Just mere facts, exercises and you know, knowledge and cerebral calisthenics. We do take it into the mind, but it moves from the mind to the heart. And then for those of us who do, they remember that we're not ga gathering for the sake of uh, theological information as an end. That's not the end, okay? But rather, we should desire and value this knowledge that our hearts would properly respond to these things and be conformed by it. It's the effect will ever humble us and encourage us as well. So in essence, the study or any study of God are not ends in themselves, but they are rather means to further those ends of life and godliness. Let me say that again. In essence, the study or any other study of God are not ends in themselves, but rather they are means to further ends, to the further ends of life and godliness. That's their purpose. In Christ, that's maturity, that's sanctification, that's drawing you in, that you may more closely resemble the one who we, we surely didn't prior to salvation, and that is Christ. We want to be more like him in every way. One day we will, we will be. Nick, Charlie's right now, He's seen the greatest thing that we could ever behold, and that's the face of his Savior. Right now, you think about that. This is all temporal. But we are moving to that which is eternal. So live accordingly. So that brings us back to Genesis 1, where God, it just states in the beginning, it just states that God exists. We don't need to look anywhere else in the scriptures that know that God exists, okay? We're not results of cosmic accidents. We are not empty bubbles floating on a sea of nothingness, result of evolutionary processes that didn't have us in mind and don't care about us. We are a result of the creator, God himself. So, Somebody read um, Isaiah How many gods are there? How many gods are there? Yeah. One. 
All right, there is one God. If it's anything we know, even a cursory reading of scripture, and you'll walk away that there is one God. If that's something we know about the Old Testament, Judaism, it's monotheistic. So is Christianity. It is monotheistic. There is one God. Um, try as you may to, um, well, there is a lot of um, great things happening amongst Mormons and uh, Christians speaking with them, but that's one good text that you can bring to a Mormon. That in 1 Corinthians 8. Uh, and they'll actually use that to kind of buttress their argument, but it's not one that stands very long under the weight of the rest of Scripture and the rest of Paul's argument that he's talking about. It makes absolute nonsense. But that's one thing that we know, that God is self-existent, right? From everlasting to everlasting, you are what? God. You've always been. There's not a point in time where God was not. In the beginning, we have NRK in the Old Testament. We have the first, uh, the prologue of John. We have the same thing. In the beginning, God. Same thing. And we have but one God. And this God who we know is a God that is Trinitarian. There is Father, there is Son, there is Holy Spirit. That is something you guys are going to teach, or Mr. Fromm, I guess, is going to be teaching on that next week. But you'll be doing a deep dive into um, the, the deity of Christ um, and things like that. I think you're going to go a little bit deeper into the Trinity. I'm not going to do it. I'm just touching lightly. Um, you guys can cover that in the <clears throat> in the next lesson. In the next lesson. Um, but I got a question for you. Why do men question the existence of God? And followed up, how has God revealed himself to man? I've already answered one of those. So why do men question the existence of God? That's a very astute. Ah, that's good. Um, yeah, it's, if I'm an unbeliever, it's in my best interest that a God not exist. I mean, the argument was um, atheists at one point, uh, they thought they had debunked, you know, theism altogether. And their question was, um, if there is no God, why are people so uncurably religious? And so I remember Sproul at one point went around the other side and, you know, said, you know, if there is a God, why are there atheists? And that's, it's in my best interest if God does not exist. But you look at Romans 1, right? Romans 1, why do people who know God exist, I mean, people may say they're atheists, but nobody's, there's no real atheist, okay, according to scripture. Everybody walks away with the knowledge of God. Let me read that real quick, just so we're not, um, just so it's fresh in our minds. Um, starting in uh, 18. So that's Romans 1, 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who, by their unrighteousness, suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them for his invisible attributes, 
namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. It's just like what we're talking about, right? So nobody walks away from living in this world, in God's world, with his creation, all the things that he has made, and then we come to know Christ is the creator of those things. Um, Nobody walks away from that with, eh. But no, it's a suppression. It's a rejection, as it says. It says, claiming to be wise, they came fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. And therefore, God gives them up as a result. Um, But what they, listen to that, for what can be known about God is plain to them. That's why, as it says, nobody's going to be without an excuse. Nobody's going to be able to stand before the tribunal of God on what the scripture calls that day. Nobody's going to be able to mount any sort of defense. If your defense is anything other than Christ, it's going to fall on deaf ears. And there's no salvation for you. But that's, you know, one thing that's interesting as I started going through uh, Romans for the first time a number of years back. There are no real atheists. Everybody walks away with that understanding. Everybody knows that God exists. And then, I mean, even demons know that God exists and they shudder. But they have no affection for God. So, what I just read, what was the result when men ignore God's creative power and ignore their conscience and turn from God? What did God do as a result of that? This is one of the questions they wanted me to ask. It said, claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged what they know to be true for a lie. Therefore, God did something. Yep. You want that? I'm going to give it to you. It said, therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to dishonoring their bodies among themselves. And they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. At the height of insult. I mean, the arrogance that we do before Christ, that we take this knowledge, this truth that he's given us, and said, I want something else. It's repugnant to me. But that just makes the sweetness of Christ even greater, that what he's done to us and what he's done for us and what he's, this new heart that he's given us, you know, it makes us, uh, it just gives us such joy in knowing what he has done and that he has done something I could never, ever do. He's, he's set this perfect standard. I mentioned God's law. You want to know God, you go look at his law. But, you know, at the same time, it's like Martin Luther. I look at that law, I see my warts, I see my spots, I see my blemishes. I try and try and try and try and clean myself off and I can't ever do it. I'll never reach it. At least to despair. I mean, and, and God's standard's not to be negotiated. There's no move, there's no moving target. It, it is what it is. <clears throat> Which makes the, the righteousness of Christ so sweet. 
and non-negotiable. So, can we know God? That's an interesting question posed by MacArthur. Can we know God? Well, you better bet we can. I just got finished in Ezekiel, um, carrying over from Jeremiah Lamentations, and went to Ezekiel. If it's one thing that you walk away with, it is that a God wants you to know him. I'm bringing judgment on you, Israel. You're going to be, uh, I'm going to send those from the north, which is Nebuchadnezzar, because of what you've done. But also, those, those, those nations that are coming uh, as judgment on you, I'm going to judge them. And he does it for this every time that you may know me, that they may know me. That they may know me, that they may know me, that they may know me, that they may know me. I mean, it is littered throughout Ezekiel that they may know me and that they may know that I am the Lord. There's a purpose in that. Look, I am here. I am doing these things. The election results, whenever that comes out, foreordained, whether we like it or not. Because it's going to be for his glory, ultimately, and for our good. Um, they want to get incomprehensibility. We, we went through that. Um, so here we start the climb on the attributes. So we have God's eternality, which lightly touched on uh, his omnipotence which is God is all powerful we have all these omni omnipresence omni uh, omniscience all the omni is just all so all knowing uh, is omniscient omnipresent is God is everywhere look at Psalm 139 there is nowhere that you're going to go where you're going to be away from God's presence um, but let's discuss some of the the, practi- the practicality and the practical implications of these attributes um, for his people. How am I doing on time? Not so, not so good. Um, speed it up. Here we go. Put it in overdrive. Um, so, let me ask you something. I'm going I'm to shoot you this question. Something that we find, uh, I'm taking this back to Christ because everything ultimately points back to Christ. You look at the Old Testament sacrificial system, everything is building up, building up, building up. That seed that was planted in Genesis is germinating and then blossoms in Christ. And so, one of God's attributes is righteousness and justice right his nature his character there's nothing that God does that violates his standard let me say that again there's nothing that God does in all of his acts to man that violates his perfect standard but I'll ask you this question how does God's love how does his love and God's 
justice harmonize together. I'm about to give it. I mean, I don't got so much time. Um, how does God's love, how does his love, and it's true love, right love, God's standard of love, how does it harmonize with justice? They are both perfect. But in a, Right. Just, it, just as it wouldn't be loving of me to just simply let a murderer go, would it? Something is not served. Justice is not served. And, I mean, one thing we know about God, he's concerned about justice, right? Because it's a, you know, injustice is a violation to God's people, isn't it? I mean, you look in the... Um, Old Testament, God was concerned for the care of his people. And even those people who, you know, were sojourners with Israel had care and concern for them because, after all, they're image bearers uh, themselves. And even the poor, God was concerned about the poor. He says, when you're harvest time, you leave the outsides that people may pick some. There's always going to be poor among you. That's never going to stop. But I've given you a certain amount, and you're going to give it to these other people. God's concerned about these things. But something can't be violated. So look at the salvation of, look at, look at my salvation. It's what Paul talks about in Romans as well. But let's take my salvation, for instance. <clears throat> Is it right for God, given all of my past, and I'll save you time on that. We won't go through everything. Um, would it be right for God to just look over those sins, sweep them under the rug, and say, you can, you can enter my presence. No, it wouldn't be justice. It'd be injustice to God. And God would be unjust in that point. So how is God, maybe this will spark something. How is God both just and the justifier of the ungodly? That's how God doesn't violate his own justice. He can only do it through Christ. And you look at um, Deuteronomy, um, curses everyone who does not do everything that is in this law, and that's every one of us. You all fall short. And that should point us even more to our need for a savior. I mean, you look at that law and the burdensomeness of it, and, and you walk away in just absolute dread and every time I talk about it, I just think of Martin Luther. It was just until he got to Romans, and it was just so illuminating, so eye-opening that for the first time, the, gate, the gates of heaven opened up, and he understood the gospel for the first time. The gospel is 
Look at uh, Romans 3, 25 through 27. That God is just and the, un- and the justifier of the ungodly. For there is no distinction. There is no distinction in this room. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ, whom God put forth as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was God's, this was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over the former sins. It was to show his righteousness righteousness at the present time so that, we have a purpose clause here, so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. That's the great reconciliation right there. That's justice. On that cross, you had both justice, right, and mercy come together. God's justice and his love in a harmonious way. So let's look at the holiness of God. What does somebody think about when I say the holiness of God? When you dwell on God's holiness, his, his, uh, <clears throat> his otherness, and you like I said, you look at his law and his character, what he cares about, what his concerns are. And then you, you do a, you know, reflect on yourself and who you are. What is your response? I would imagine it's probably the same as uh, Isaiah when he comes in the immediate presence of God and how unworthy he is to be in his presence. And he takes the, the angel takes the coal, puts it upon his lip, cauterizes his lip, atoning for the sin that he could be in the place of the holy. But it points to our, again, I keep saying this, it points to our need for a savior. There's not one person in this world that thinks that everything is okay. And that not only is everything okay, but I'm okay. Or that, um, you know, I think this thing is right, but hey, these other people think this way is right. I'm just a law unto myself, and I'm just kind of my own standard. You know, about that own thinking. Is anything real? Is anything valid? And you get lost in all that. But we have something that is wonderful. We have something that is immutable. God is immutable. He does not change. I remember being at work one time, uh, it was last year, and I was sitting there reading, I forgot what I was reading, I was reading something, uh, but I was, I was preparing, so, and we have a, we have a cafe at work, everybody goes in, and um, there's a number of people at the table, and this guy Bill leaned over and he's, you know, what are you reading? I'm reading the scriptures. And then he, he says that, uh, has some association with uh, not Christian, but uh, I forgot what it was. Um, 
or maybe he said he was just forgot where it was. But he's like, yeah, it's just weird how you know God's he had that Old Testament God and God New Testament. It's almost like he got things right when he got to the New Testament. He's not as crotchety. He's different. He's got things all together. He, he's, uh, I was like, excuse me? You know, it's like, no, he's, he's the same. <laughs> he's the same. John? God's holiness. It is uh, his pureness, his perfection, also aligned with his standards. So he does not, he lives up to every standard that he has because it's his very being, his very essence of who God is. His, uh, which is why ungodly people cannot be in his presence. Um, but you look at what's, what's most often repeated to the third in Scripture. We have songs about it. Holy, holy, holy. And what's the point in doing something like that? It's to add emphasis, right? And you look at uh, the Psalms. The Psalms, you have sometimes you got one sentence, and you have another one, and there's nothing new. There's no new information in the second one than there was in the first one. So it's a parallelism. It has emphasis. So it's a, it's a modern-day uh, exclamation point. But God's holiness is perfection. His otherness. Oh. Yeah, that's one attribute that God has. That's one attribute that God has that we are called to have. We're not called to have immutability. Thank God, we're, we're not going to do that. We're not called to have omnipresence, omniscience, none of these things, but we are called to be holy. You picked up on something. Good, John. Uh, yeah, we're, we're called to be holy. Learn from Peter. I mean, we're called to be as Christ. Was Christ perfect? I sure hope he was. Otherwise, we don't have anything. As Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, we must be pitied. We wasted our entire lives for nothing. Yet he is. Hmm? Yeah, because of Christ. But, no, well, not yet. How's that? Ah. We got a heckler. Yeah. Yeah, you have. Um, I've I've never run across it, but I remember somebody saying there's the uh, like a holiness movement um, where you know they think they reach perfection, and you like you, you look at Romans seven. How are you kidding me? You got Paul acknowledging that he he does what he doesn't want to do, and he does the things that he does uh, he doesn't want to do. The things I want to do, I don't do. And they said, Ah, uh, Paul just never made it. I'm not, I'm not kidding you. Um, I'm not sure what branch that is. Um, but it's certainly their basis is not. 
Sounds cultish, for sure. Um, I'll give a plug for cultish right now. If you want to listen to a good co- podcast on cults, um, especially one in particular uh, um, on the New Age. There's a lot of New Age philosophy, which is really just old uh, uh, Gnosticism. There's a book, even, Gnosticist, not, uh, Gnosticist Empire Strikes Back. Um, it's New Age. It's all about New Age. And Stephen, Stephen Bancars, he's, uh, he's on one of those podcasts, absolutely phenomenal. Cry, uh, God saved him uh, a few years ago, but he was, he was like 25 years old. He was like the biggest person in the New Age movement. He was 25. He had a website. It was pulling in revenue up to twenty, thirty thousand dollars a week. I'm not kidding you. And just selling all his new age philosophies and ideas. He was into astral projection, which is kind of outer body experiences and things like that. Um, but to hear him talk, it's just so that's his thing now. He's he's an apologist for the Christian Church to those people lost in the in the cult of. Uh, that say that again John I was reading no it says live let's go to uh, oops let's go to Actually, we'll do Ephesians. So put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life, and is corrupt through deceitful desires. That's that heart again. Uh, And be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and put on the new self. What is this new self? What is it created after? It is created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each of you speak truth with his neighbor. We are members of one another. And it goes on. It's on about the Christian walk and the Christian life, what you should be, how you should be living. Um, and there's implications of godly living. Does that answer your question, John? Yes. It's a, a desire that the Christian wants to do. Uh, 
Um, and that's what's something that should be noticeable in the Christian. And, and things are, some are slower, some are faster than other ones, but that's some, something that should be a noticeable difference um, from B.C. to your new life. Um, you should see a vast difference because after all, what, what did you say? You're, it doesn't say it here, but he's pointing to it. But he says in Corinthians, you're, you're a new creation. The old has passed away and the new is here. Okay? How am I to know him in those things? Like, how am I supposed to, and, and, and God's given us teachers, right, to help us with these things. He's given us all the means by which we can grow in godliness. And one of those is just by his word, simply his word being in this. We're in the secular world a majority of the day. And if we have 30 or 45 minutes a day spending in God's word, you know, it's okay, but, you know, you want to be spending more. You want your mind shaped. You want it shaped by God's ways. You want it shaped by God's words and um, how he says I should love. What are my concerns? What should be my concerns? Not what I see, what the world is concerned with. Which points to the love of God. What's God's love like? Let's take that. Maybe I can sail out of here with that. Oh, dang. Hold on. Give me a few more minutes. So the love of God. Let's do that real quick. What is, God, what is God's love like? Yeah, and it is. It's perfect. Um, let's look at Luke. Luke! Um... One of my favorite, one of my favorite passages. Um, what does Christ say to do in, in Luke chapter 6? What is, who are you to love that they seem to be so unlovable? No, God is lovable. Who is unlovable? What did you say, David? Your enemies. Thank you. <laughs> he says, but there's a purpose. There's a reason why he says, love your enemies. Well, it's multifaceted, but one of the main uh, points is, he says, but love your enemies and do good and lend expecting nothing in return and your reward will be great and you'll be sons of the Most High. Listen to this now. It's a purpose in all this, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. That's why you to do these things, but be merciful. Be merciful. It's an act of love, even as your Father is merciful. You do these things to be like Him. You're called to be holy. This is holy living. I'm asking you to do this as a representation, and uh, you know, out in the world, this is what God is like. 
I was a rebel. I was a sinner. I was an enemy of God. He reconciled me to himself. Oh, yeah. But what what does the scripture say? And yet, while we were enemies, Christ died for the ungodly. You were ungodly in every way. But now that Christ, he looks at us, he sees all the perfection of Christ. I really wish I had more, more time. Actually, can I end, can I end on uh, Daniel's prayer? And then, um, John, if you'll pray us out. Daniel had a, a love of the scriptures too. What was he doing that in chapter 9? Or no, it's chap- yeah, it was chapter 9. It's so great. He, reading there, he, was, he was reading, he goes, I perceived in the book of Jeremiah the number of years. Jeremiah was talking about the exile to which they were going. Daniel is in the exile. And he, he knew it was God's standard. He knew it was true. He had no qualms about it. He knew that was God's truth, and he perceived in it. And it was 70 years. Okay, I'm only going to do a little snapshot here. I'm not going to do the whole thing. Then I turned my face to to the Lord God, seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God and made confessions, saying... O oh Lord, the great and awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. We have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from your commandments and rules. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, and to all the people of the land. To you, O oh Lord, belongs righteousness. Listen to that. To you belongs righteousness. You are the standard of righteousness. But to us open shame, as at this day, to the men of Judah, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and to all Israel, those who are near and those who are far away, in all the lands to which you have driven them, because of the treachery they have committed against you. To us, Lord, belongs open shame. To our kings, to our princes, and our fathers, because we have sinned against you. But to our Lord belong mercy and forgiveness. I'll end on that. But he knows mercy and forgiveness are with him. And it just we have rebelled and don't deserve to be in God's immediate presence. And they didn't either. But in Christ, we have the assurance of a full pardon. All right, John. Thank you, John.